Welcome to Egg Crash Investigation, the podcast, the show where we dissect and discuss primary crashes in aviation history. I'm your host, Zonak Kai, and in today's episode, we are going to be discussing the chaos that is Air Canada Flight 797. The crew, the crash, the investigation, and everything else in between. But before we continue, do not forget to rate us on the podcast listening platform that you're listening to us on, such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon Music, you know, every single thing. So don't forget to rate us five stars on the podcast platform that you're listening to us on. And without wasting any more of your time, let us get into it. It is the greatest aviation mystery of all time. Lies a massive passenger jet and the remains of its 239 passengers and crew. Uh, good morning. We have a uh, smoke uh, uh, problem. And we're doing emergency descent to level 105140. In December 1988, a passenger airliner was bombed over Scotland in what was one of the largest pre-9-11 terrorist attacks. Canada Flight 797 was a scheduled flight for the 2nd of June 1983. Its origin was Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport, Texas, the United States. And can we stop and just like think about the fact it has been a long time since we've heard an airplane coming from Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport. Either way, its destination was Montreal Doval International Airport, Quebec, Canada, and the stopover was Toronto Pearson International Airport, Ontario, Canada. The aircraft used was the McDonnell Douglas DC-9, and the call sign for this flight was Air Canada 797. The crew. So the captain of this flight was Donald S. Cameron, who was 51 years old. He was employed by Air Canada on the 28th of March 1956. He was qualified to fly the Grumman G-73, the Vickers VC-9, Lockheed L-49, the DC-3, DC-4, DC-8 and DC-9 airplanes. He was qualified as captain on the DC-9 in November of 1974. He had 13,000 flight hours with 4,939 flight hours on the DC-9. His last medical certificate was on the 17th of February 1983 and he had the limitation that it was only valid and I quote, only when required glasses are available, end quote. The first officer of this flight was Clued we met who was 34 years old at the time of the crash. He was employed by Air Canada on the 25th of November 1973. He was qualified to fly and I quote, class 7 airplanes of 12,500 pounds or 5,670 kgs or less and for the DC-9, end quote. He was qualified as first officer on the DC-9 in February 1979. He had 5,659 flight hours with 2,999 flight hours on the DC-9 aircraft. His last medical certificate was issued on the 21st of April 1983 and he had no limitations. 
In total, there were 41 passengers on board and three flight attendants. So the flight, so the time zone used in the final report, they used both Central Daylight Time and Eastern Daylight Time. So I'm just gonna let you know when I'm using which time zone. Let's get started. At 25 minutes past 4 p.m., Air Canada Flight 797 takes off from Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport in Texas, the United States. Sorry if this sounds a little bit different from the rest of the episode. I just made a mistake and I'd just like to correct it right here. Sorry about that. They quickly reached an altitude of 33,000 feet or 10,058 meters mean sea level. Here I'm quoting from the final report, about 30 minutes after departure, a 30 inch long or 76 centimeters by 9 inch wide or 23 centimeters lovered panel at the bottom of the cockpit door was kicked accidentally from its mounts and fell to the floor. The panel was placed to one side and the flight continued, end quote. So at 9 minutes to 7 p.m. EST or Eastern Daylight Time, Quoting again from the final report, the three circuit breakers associated with the AFT laboratory's flush motor and located on a panel on the cockpit wall behind the captain's seat tripped in rapid succession, end quote. Due to this, Captain Cameron tried to reset the circuit breakers but it was unsuccessful. Captain Cameron did not take further action after he initially tried to fix the problem. At 1 minute to 7 p.m., Captain Cameron tried again, but he was unsuccessful. At 7 p.m., a passenger who was sitting in the last row actually smelt an unusual odor from the laboratory. He then decides to tell a flight attendant. Now, for the sake of this episode, I'm going to be naming flight attendants in order to avoid confusion. So, this passenger tells flight attendant one that there's an unusual odor coming from the laboratory, aka the bathroom. So flight attendant number one takes a carbon dioxide fire extinguisher and opens the laboratory door a little and they see light gray smoke but no flames. So flight attendant one tells flight attendant two about the smoke and at two minutes past 7 p.m. flight attendant two enters the cockpit and they say and I quote, excuse me there's a fire in the washroom in the back, they just went back to go to put it out, end quote. Flight attendant one decides to start moving passengers from the back of the plane to the front. Captain Cameron then instructs first officer we met to inspect the laboratory. First officer we met leaves the cockpit without smoke, goggles or a portable oxygen bottle. First officer we met could not enter the laboratory to inspect and at 4 minutes past 7 p.m. 7 seconds, first officer we met re-enters the cockpit and he says that he could not see anything inside the laboratory due to the smoke. First officer we met then suggested and I quote, we better go down, end quote. At 4 minutes past 7 p.m. 16 seconds, the flight attendant who is in charge of the flight enters the cockpit and said that Captain Cameron didn't, and I quote, have to worry. I think it's gonna be easing up, end quote. At 4 minutes past 7 p.m. 23 seconds, first officer we met looks into the cabin and says, and I quote, it's starting to clear now, end quote, it being the smoke. 
Now, before we continue, I think we all know that even if there is a minute risk that there's a fire on board, it is the crew's responsibility to land the plane as soon as possible. And this crew just did not have the urgency that they should have, even if there wasn't a fire, but they really should have just landed the plane there and then and just declared an emergency. But please just keep this at the back of your mind because it happens quite a bit. I'm quoting again from the final report. And that he would go AFT again if the captain wanted him to do so. According to the captain, the first officer's smoke goggles were stored in a bin on the right side of the cockpit and were not easily accessible to the first officer whilst he was not in his seat. Since the first officer needed the goggles and since there was a hurry, the captain gave him his goggles and at 4 minutes past 7 p.m. 46 seconds directed him to go AFT." End quote. First officer we met went back to the laboratory and the door was too hot to touch so he did not open it. At 5 minutes past 7 p.m. 35 seconds, the aeroplane experienced an electrical malfunction, not even one, but several. The aeroplane's left electrical systems lost power. That is a problem. At 6 minutes past 7 p.m. 12 seconds, Captain Cameron contacted the Indianapolis Control Center and he let them know that they should be on standby due to an electrical problem. Yet again, he is not stressing the fact that there probably is a fire on the plane. He's just kind of being casual about it. It's just kind of frustrating. So, at 7 minutes past 7 p.m. 11 seconds, first officer we met returns to the cockpit and he says, and I quote, I don't like what's happening. I think we better go down. Okay? End quote. Then at 7 minutes past 7 p.m. 41 seconds, and I quote, the master warning light illuminated and the annunciator lights indicated that the emergency 4C and DC electrical buses had lost power. Problem. The captain's and first officer's attitude directional indicators tumbled. The captain ordered the first officer to activate the emergency power switch, thereby directing battery power to the emergency AC and DC buses. The attitude directional indicators gyros became erecting. However, because of the loss of AC power, the stabilizer trim was inoperative and remained so during the rest of the flight. End quote. This shows that there is a serious electrical problem and it kind of seems like the crew is not doing anything about it. Big problem. So from now on, I'm going to be narrating the flight according to the eyes of the air traffic controller and not what is happening inside the airplane just wanted to let you know so at eight minutes past 7 p.m 12 seconds the crew finally decides to declare mayday at eight minutes past 7 p.m 47 seconds the crew then told the indianapolis air traffic controller that it had a fire and was going down the controller then asked Flight 797, and I quote, Can you possibly make Cincinnati? End quote. Cincinnati being an airport possibly in Cincinnati, Ohio. So then the crew then said that they could make it to Cincinnati, and the air traffic controller decided to clear them to descend to 5,000 feet or 1,524 meters. 
Here I'm quoting from the final report. At 9 minutes past 7 p.m. 5 seconds, Flight 797 reported that it was leaving flight level 330 or 33,000 feet, aka 10,058 meters. The flight then told the controller that it needed to be vectored towards Cincinnati, that it was declaring an emergency, and that it had changed its transponder code to 7700, the emergency code. However, the transponder was inoperative due to the power loss and the emergency code was never portrayed on the center's radar scopes. End quote. So at 9 minutes past 9, the Louisville Air Traffic Controller then decides to direct Flight 797 to Greater Cincinnati Airport, now Cincinnati or Northern Kentucky International Airport. The Indianapolis Air Traffic Controller then contacts the approach controller at Cincinnati Airport's Terminal Radar Control, aka Traycon facility, to let them know about Flight 797's approach. The Traycon facility then accepted this and they wanted Air Canada Flight 797 to land on runway 36. The Traycon facility then alerted the crash fire rescue personnel to prepare for an emergency landing. So here I'm quoting from final report yet again. At 12 minutes past 7 p.m. 44 seconds, the flight requested the cloud ceiling at the airport and the controller responded that the ceiling was, and I quote, 2,500 feet or 762 meters scattered, measured 8,000 feet or 2,438 meters, overcast, visibility 1, 2 or 12 miles, aka 19 kilometers with light rain. End quote. The controller then decided that the eastbound target was 797 and at 12 minutes past 7 p.m. 54 seconds, he requested the flight to say altitude. Its reported altitude, it being flight 797 of 8,000 feet or 2,438 meters, that it was too high and too fast to land on runway 36. He decided to use runway 27 left for landing and use the primary target to monitor the flight and vector it towards the airport. End quote. At 13 minutes past 7 p.m. 38 seconds, the air traffic controller then instructed Air Canada Flight 797 to turn left. The air traffic controller further cleared Flight 797 to descend to 3,500 feet or 1,067 meters. Flight 797 was about 12 nautical miles, 22 kilometers or 14 miles southeast of Cincinnati Airport. At a quarter past 7 p.m. 11 seconds, Flight 797 was at 2,500 feet or 762 meters. At a quarter past 7 p.m. 27 seconds, Flight 797 was under visual flight rules, aka VFR. I'm again quoting from the final report and I quote, At 17 minutes past 7 p.m. 11 seconds, the controller told the flight that the crash fire rescue vehicles were standing by and again asked the flight to provide the number of persons and the amount of fuel on board. Flight 797 answered, We don't have time. It's getting worse here. At 17 minutes past 7 p.m. 24 seconds, the runway and approach lights were turned up to full intensity. At 17 minutes past 7 p.m. 35 seconds, Flight 797 reported the airport in sight. The approach controller declared it to land and told it that the surface wind was 230 degrees at 4 knots. 
At 18 minutes past 7 p.m. 48 seconds, the approach controller told the flight that it was 3 nautical miles, 3 miles or 6 kilometers from the airport and then asked the tower local controller if she had the airplane in sight. The local controller said she did. After telling Flight 797 that it was 2 nautical miles, 4 kilometers or 2 miles from the airport, the approach controller asked the local controller to tell him when Flight 797 had landed. At 20 minutes past 7 p.m. 2 seconds, the local controller told the approach controller he's landed. End quote. Now here's a quote from the crew's perspective after they landed. So, after touchdown, he made a maximum effort stop. By he, we mean in Captain Cameron, using extended spoilers and full brakes. Because of the loss of the left and right AC buses, the anti-skid system was inoperative and the four main wheel tires blew out. The aeroplane was stopped just short of the intersection of Taxiway J. After the captain, Captain Cameron, completed the emergency engine shutdown checklist, both he and the first officer, aka first officer we met, attempted to go back into the cabin and assist in the passenger evacuation, but were driven back by the smoke and heat. Thereafter, they exited the aeroplane through their respective cockpit sliding windows. After the aeroplane stopped, the left, aka L1, and the right, aka R1, forward cabin doors, the left forward L2, overwing exit, and the right forward R2, and AFT R3 overwing exits were opened, and the slides at the L1 and R1 doors were deployed and inflated. The three cabin attendants and 18 passengers used these five exits to evacuate the aeroplane. End quote. And unfortunately, after the 18 passengers and 5 crew members, all of them including Captain Cameron and First Officer we met, left the aeroplane, the cabin interior burst into flames. 23 passengers perished in the fire. Neither the passengers, crew, nor witnesses outside of the aeroplane saw flames inside the cabin before the survivors left the plane. The fuselage and passenger cabin were gutted before the airport fire personnel could extinguish the fire, end quote. So as you have heard, 23 people unfortunately died in the fire. The investigation. So the National Transportation Safety Board, or NTSB, was in charge of investigating this crash because the crash happened on U.S. soil. However, I would think that the Transportation Safety Board, or TSB, of Canada would have helped. However, there is no mention of them in the report, despite the fact that Air Canada is one of the largest airlines in Canada. So I would think that the TSB would have helped, but there's no mention whatsoever of them being involved in the investigation so this crash of course made headline news because a canada is such a big airliner and it was susceptible to a lot of scrutiny so the crash site i'm going to be quoting from the final report both engines and their associated cowlings were intact undamaged and showed no evidence of exposure to abnormal heat or fire there was no evidence of oil or fuel leakage and the main engine fuel supply system did not leak when pressure tested. The engine fire extinguisher bottles had been discharged. The XPU, I do not know what that is, but the XPU was intact and was not damaged. The exterior of the auxiliary power unit, aka the APU, and surrounding compartment were free of soot and other fire damage. End quote. 
Now, before we continue, I would just like to give a difference between the XPU and APU. Now, the XPU, I have got no idea what that is. I scoured the internet. I googled for literal hours and I could not find what this thing means. So, if you are a pilot, please let me know what this is because I have got absolutely no idea. So, I'm just going to assume that it is a CPU. I'm just going to assume that it, that's a CPU and a CPU according to Gartner.com. CPU stands for Central Processing Unit and it is, and I quote, the compartment of a computer system that controls the interpretation and execution of instructions, end quote. So I'd like to assume that the XPU is the CPU of the airplane. However, I think that is just a spelling error because not gonna lie that final report is full of a lot of spelling errors if you were going to read that thing i'm just wishing you a lot of luck because it's hard to read either way the apu which is easier to find is the auxiliary power unit and according to sky it is a small jet engine that and i quote allows an aircraft to operate autonomously without reliance on ground support equipment such as a ground power unit an external air conditioning unit or a high pressure air start cut end quote now we're going back to quoting from the final report the empennage and wings were not damaged by either fire or heat. The leading edge slides and trailing edge flaps were fully extended. The nose gear was extended and locked. The nose wheel tires were inflated. Both main landing gears were extended and locked. Except for the support bracket on the left main landing gear, which was bent and twisted slightly AFT, the main landing gear was not damaged. However, all four main wheel tires had blown on landing. End quote. Now it's time for the meteorological information. So at 10 minutes to 7 p.m. at Cincinnati Airport, they were experiencing the following conditions. 2,500 feet or 762 meters scattered, measured ceiling 8,000 feet or 2,438 meters overcast, visibility 12 miles or 19 kilometers, light rain, temperature 63 degrees Fahrenheit or 17 degrees Celsius, dew point 55 degrees Fahrenheit or 13 degrees Celsius, wind 190 degrees at 7 knots, 13 kilometers an hour or 8 miles per hour. End quote. So the pathological information, and I quote, blood samples were taken from the 16 surviving and 23 deceased passengers and were analyzed by the FAA Civil Aeronautical Institute, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, for carbon monoxide and alcohol, end quote. And the results are as follows. The results of the analysis indicated that the deceased had elevated carbon monoxide levels ranging from 20 to 63 degree saturation. The threshold for carbon monoxide in the blood at which incapacitation occurs is between 40 and 50 degree saturation, end quote. There was a huge level of carbon monoxide concentration in the bodies of not only the surviving people but also the deceased. 14 of the 18 survivors' blood samples tested negative for alcohol. The other four samples tested below 0,10% concentration, end quote. Now, the final report does not mention whether or not Captain Cameron and First Officer we met were part of the four that tested for 0,10% concentration of 
alcohol so we will never truly know because that final report was incredibly vague but just wanted to let you know the fire so in relation to the fire on board although the fire on board flight 797 began in flight no one saw flames in the cabin until after the flight had landed and the survivors had left the airplane the last passengers to depart the airplane through the left and right overwing emergency exits stated that they saw flames immediately after stepping onto the wing end quote now this is incredibly weird seeing as though flight attendants or one flight attendant said that there was a fire on board and they told the captain that there was a fire on board but passengers who were disembarking the plane whilst essentially trying to run away from the fire only said that they saw the fire when they were evacuating so it's very confusing and it is incredibly suspicious so the testing samples of waste tank water fiberglass insulation from the laboratory where the fire allegedly started aluminium shelf and suit deposits from the inside of the laboratory service panel access door and fiberglass flooring were sent for testing and the results were as follows flammable accelerants were identified on the items listed above the source of the spots of the fiberglass flooring could not be determined. The soot deposits contained residues which were characteristic of a phenolic residue resulting from the burning of phenolic resins such as those contained in the cabin and laboratory walls and other materials. End quote. So what are phenolic resins? What are phenolic residue? Phenolic stands for phenylformaldehyde resin and this is a resin which is used to make electronics, ballistics, water pipe systems and so much more. More tests were done of course but nothing was found in terms of where this fire started and everyone including me were confused. However, we heard that phenolic resins are used to make water pipe systems and one of the places where a water pipe system would be found would be the laboratory. So possibly the fire started in the laboratory, we will never truly know. So the findings because we have got no idea what is going on with this flight. So number one and I quote, the flight crew and the cabin crew were qualified and trained in accordance with Canadian regulations and Air Canada requirements. Each crew member had received the off-duty time prescribed by Canadian regulations. Number two, a fire propagated through the amenities section of the AFT laboratory and had burned undetected for almost 15 minutes before the smoke was first noticed. Number three, the fire was not set deliberately, nor was it the result of an explosive or incendiary device. Number four, the safety board could not identify the origin of the fire. Number five, the first malfunction to evidence itself to the flight crew was a simultaneous tripping of the three flush motor circuit breakers about 11 minutes before the smoke was discovered. The flight crew did not consider this to be a serious problem, which is what I was saying before. The crew was just like, oh, well, it happens all the time, I guess. And they just did not react. The captain was just like, oh, maybe I can try and fix it instead of asking himself, why did it happen in the first place? 
Number six, the source of the smoke was never identified either by the flight attendants or the first officer. The captain was never told nor did he inquire as to the precise location and extent of the quote-unquote fire which had been reported to him. Thereafter, he misconstrued reports that the fire was abating and delayed his decision to declare an emergency and descend, which is exactly what I was saying at the start of this episode. Number seven, because of the delayed decision to descend, the aeroplane lost the opportunity to be landed at Louisville. Had the aeroplane been landed at Louisville, it could have been landed three to five minutes earlier than it actually did land at Cincinnati. The delayed decision to descend and land contributed to the severity of the accident and more people could have been saved. Number eight, the first officer turned off the air conditioning and pressurization packs in the belief that the airflow was feeding the fire. The resulting loss of circulation accelerated the accumulation of smoke, heat and toxic gases in the cabin and likely decreased the time available for evacuation. Number 9. A flash fire occurred within the cabin within 60 to 90 seconds after the doors and overwing windows exits were opened. Flames from the fire were not evident until after the survivors had left the aeroplane. Flames from the original fire never were evident within the aeroplane or to the persons on the ground. And number 10. This was a survivable accident. End quote. So, in my opinion, the cause of this was definitely that fire that could not be determined. No one knows where this fire or how this fire started. However, the fire definitely did lead and it is the leading cause of this crash and the killing of 23 people however the contributing cause was of course pala era because the crew being captain cameron and first officer we met did not evacuate properly nor did they consider the first initial problem being the popping out of the three circuit breakers they did not consider that as a serious problem and i feel like they should have considered that as a serious problem Instead, Captain Cameron was just like, oh, I can try and fix this. And he tried and he failed and he still did nothing about it. Furthermore, after the initial, oh, there's a fire on the plane, the crew did nothing about it. Yes, first officer we met was like, yeah, no, we need to get down. We need to land. We need to descend. Captain Cameron, I think he was just set on we have to land at Montreal Doval International Airport when it's like you could have just landed at Louisville. You could have saved 23 lives. Yes, I'm not blaming him, but he's definitely part of the problem. So to make this official, the probable cause of this crash, and I quote, the National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable causes of the accident were a fire of undetermined origin and underestimate of fire severity and the conflicting fire progress information provided to the captain. Contributing to the severity of the accident was the flight crew's delayed decision to institute an emergency descent, end quote, basically what I was saying before, but more formal. So the recommendation set out by the National Transportation Safety Board to the Federal Aviation Administration, aka the FAA. Number one, require a means for early detection of laboratory fires on all turbine-powered transport category aircraft operated under Part 121 of the Federal Aviation Regulations such as smoke detectors or operating procedures for the frequent inspections of laboratories by cabin attendants. Number two, 
require emergency oxygen bottles with full-face smoke masks for each cabin attendant on turbine-powered transport aircraft in order to permit the attendants to combat laboratory and cabin fires. Number three, organize a government or industry task force on aircraft fire prevention to review design criteria and formulate specific modifications for improvements with respect to the fire potential of such enclosed areas as laboratories in turbine-powered aircraft operating under the provisions of Part 121 of Federal Aviation Regulations. And that is the end of today's episode. I really do hope that you enjoyed it. Yes, it is long. It's kind of like an apology for not uploading last week. It's just I'm all over the place. Either way, do not forget to rate us on the podcast platform that you're listening to us on. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at ACI underscore T-H-E underscore podcast. And follow us on Twitter at ACI T-H-E podcast. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you in the next one. Cheers.